The Incomparable. Number 171. November 2013. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and we're back with a sequel to episode 99. If you consult your incomparable reference materials that I, you no doubt bring out before you listen to every episode to tally how many times I uh, comment about how many books Scott Nolte reads or how many references to David Lore as the next Dan Morin, or, you know, you, I can't really expect anybody to count the number of times we talk about Glenning because that's like nearly an infinite number. Uh, if my math is correct. But anyway, you'll discover that episode 99 was something we called the summer reading list, which was not really a draft so much as just a uh, an opportunity for us to pick books that we liked, that we wanted to recommend that everybody out there might want to read. We got a lot of feedback from people saying, hey, uh, I'm looking for a good book to read. You got any suggestions? And so we're doing it again. And so that was the summer reading list. I guess this is the winter reading list, although there's no theme intended here other than books we like. And by the time we're done, you should have uh, more than a dozen books that you can uh, consider to put on your own reading list. Or if you want, if you're expecting gifts this holiday season, put on your gift list and ha- uh, and have your loved ones buy them for you. So everybody's going to pick some books they like and talk about them a little bit. And that's the whole show. Let me introduce these people who are uh, who have read at least three books to comprise a list. <laughs> Uh, David Lore, as I mentioned before, he's uh, on almost every podcast that Dan Morin's not on. Hi, David. <laughs> Hello. I'm uh, still uh, toting up all the Glennings in, in my Glenning ledger. It's a separate book, actually, which is... Uh, it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. Uh, Doesn't count against your three. <laughs> oh, it's not a very good read. No. no I'm not... I wouldn't recommend it. Definitely that. not. Glenn Fleischman, aforementioned, is here. Hi, Glenn. Hello. I shall mention no German novels this evening. That's too bad. The Sorrows of Young Werther is actually not that not that bad. But Anna, next time. Von... Oh, sorry. Yeah, next time. Lisa Schmeiser is also here. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Erica Ensign is back with us again. Hi, Erica. Hello. It's nice to be back. Yes, excellent. And Scott McNulty, of course, the ringer. He's read all the books. He could pick any book. And uh, welcome, Scott. Winter is coming, Jason. <laughs> That's right. And you need books. You need books to burn for warmth. <laughs> As you read them. So is this why you read the George R. R. Martin? Is it lasts longer in a blizzard? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. You can enjoy a page before you burn it. Yeah. That's right. I have a cottage built entirely of Stephen King novels for that reason. Jimla, Jimla. Ooh, the creepiest cottage ever. <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> Not of Stephen King himself. Sorry. So because I, I, I just can't resist... Uh, the, the draft format, we will at least pick in some sort of order. And I've asked my panelists not to pick any of the books that were in episode 99 because uh, we don't want to be the kind of friends who keep recommending the same books to you over and over again. That gets boring. So we're going to be we're going to do things a little differently. And I'm going to start with Lisa Schmeiser. What do you what do you have? What's your first recommendation? My first recommendation is Christopher Moore's um the Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove. Nice. I've never heard of this. Really? Yes. Neither right. have I. Oh. <laughs> is this so, real? Are you yes, putting me is, on? Is, is this real. a made-up book? <laughs> no, The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove is probably the best entry to his increasing body of work. Christopher Moore is an author based out of central to northern California who may be known in less fantasy and sci-fi um circles for his book uh, Lamb, the Gospel of Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal. And I highly recommend Lamb, but in order to figure out whether or not you like Chris Moore as a whole, 
you should read The Lust Lizard of Melancholy Cove first. It's about an ancient sea creature which um, gets roused by a leak at a local nuclear plant, somehow stumbles into a trailer park, assumes protective coloration, and um, in order to lure his prey, he sends out vibes that somehow manage to readjust everybody's mental health problems and libido. And gradually, the residents of the town, which include a psychiatrist who's watching her clientele drop off, a pothead um, sheriff, an ex-scream queen, um, who is also a paranoid schizophrenic, and um, a wildlife naturalist team up to figure out what's going on and get this and, and get the big monster back in the ocean. It's super duper funny, um, humane and compassionate. And once you read that, you can then move on to things like, um, oh gosh, Bite Me, which is about vampires living in San Francisco. You can then move on to um, Island of the Sequin Love Nun, which is about an organ-running operation somewhere in the southeast. And it all culminates in, in his heartwarming classic about Christmas zombies um, called The Stupidest Angel. Anyway, I highly recommend um, The Less Lizard of Melancholy Cove. It's a nice, fast read. It's light, but it still touches on themes um, like how people handle career disappointments or compromise, how, you know, the, the endless optimism of trying to reinvent yourself. And of course, what you do when a giant lust lizard falls in love with a crazy woman who once played um, Kendra warrior princess of the outback. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, so that's a really serious uh, button down kind of. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh, yeah. like. Only serious people read those books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to say Island of the Sequin Love Nun was my, my entry into yeah? his books. I mean, way, way back when it was, like first out because i literally saw the title i didn't even look at the back of the book i went no, that's the mine title's great yes tucker the pilot oh my gosh yep. tucker and cp yeah you find out what happens to tucker and cp in um the stupidest christmas oh i i have them all lined up here oh yeah yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> you're gonna like one of my later picks yeah oh 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 my gosh oh, yeah, foreshadowing mm-hmm. Ooh. i almost went for fool because i really loved his take on lear and I'm, ah, I'm, see, I wanted to write that as a play, and that came out like a month later. It's like son of a. Oh, and it's so good too. And it's well, it the is. thing is, is it the Chris um, Christopher Moore is a lot like Terry Pratchett, who you know foreshadowing. Um, in that <laughs> as he's gotten older, he's he's tackled more serious themes and has been less afraid. And has been you know he still brings the funny, but he's also not afraid to 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 pull at your heartstrings and and talk about the universal tragedies of human life. And and fool is is probably the the top of the genre for that. But I I really think that if you want to start with his early, the first book is Practical Demon Keeping, which gives you a, a taste of him. But I really don't think he came into his own until Lust yeah. Lizard of, of of Melancholy Cove. Yeah. And and so I would read that. And then if you want, then go back and backtrack to Practical Demon Keeping, which acts as kind of a prequel. And then you read the the Vampire series, which is Bite Me and um, Wow, you suck. And then there's um. <laughs> And then there's the one he does about the Angel of Death taking over San Francisco for a little bit. Um, and I, I can't remember the name of that one off the top of my head. And and then, of course, there's Lamb, which I read almost every year around Easter. So I feel like this guy is like a, 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 a I don't know, byline vampire or something where I like I can't see him. I I just yeah. I, it's it's weird. I, I feel like I've I should have heard of him and maybe I have, but it certainly didn't stick. So that's cool. Th- that's a great one. Yeah. I, I love it when I'm completely taken by surprise by a choice so when scott picks a book about hitler later mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they are all about hitler yeah and i won't be surprised and so i won't be impressed scott uh, 
All right, so that's great, Lisa. Thank you very much. Let's move on to David Lore. David, what's your selection? Well, for my first pick, I'm going to kind of cheat because I have an omnibus book with a trilogy in it. Oh, Ooh, okay, whatever. It's fine. It's the, the rules are, are, are not... First off, Steve Lutz isn't here, and I bedevil him with rules. <laughs> and second, we're just trying to do good here. If somebody right. can pick it up as an omnibus, it's all the more convenient, right? It's not so much yeah, an omnibus right. as several books he took the covers off and glued together, though, David, isn't it? <laughs> that's creepy. That's actually I'm going to support this 100%. Foreshadowing. Oh, dear. Okay. Oh. What is, what is oh. happening already? <laughs> Scott is a very well-behaved, orderly, uh. what some might say, person. It's true. All so, what are we doing again? His book's about Hitler, Lined up, <laughs> orderly line. Uh, David, you were going to yes. pick a trilogy, a trilogy called the Deptford Trilogy by Robertson Davies. Uh, he's a Canadian novelist, and uh, I mean, he was uh, basically lived through the entire twentieth century. Passed away just around the turn of the century this year, this eh, this century. Um, but even even at that, a lot of people have considered him like the Canadian Dickens. Because he he writes these just immensely detailed stories of life in Canada throughout the century. And this one is kind of an amazing trilogy. It's not even the, the first one that I got into, but it's probably his best. The first part of it is called Fifth Business. And it's about these two men who grow up in at like the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century... And one of them is sort of a scholarly gentleman. The other one uh, is the son of a politician. He grows up to be a big businessman. Uh, He's a nasty piece of work. And as children, the son of the politician packs a rock into a snowball and tries to throw it at the academic kid who ducks, and it hits a pregnant woman and causes her to go into labor. And all three books spin out of that single incident, which is kind of amazing. So the first book is about the academic growing up and sort of him watching how the other kid is just evil and nasty and manages to become this big businessman. The second book is from the point of view of the son of the businessman going through therapy, trying to understand his father and understand what his father did. And that's called The Manticore. And then the last book is called World of Wonders. And it's about the kid who was born as a result of the early labor. He became a a hobo for a while and then turns into a a world-renowned magician and sort of manages to get his revenge in the end. It's amazing. And just the thought that all of these bizarre, wonderful stories spin out of a kid throwing a snowball just blew my mind when i read it well it is canada but it's canada yeah (laughs) that happens all the time so snowballs are available so so lots of beer and bacon and everyone says a it's wonderful (laughs) i will i will second this uh recommendation i have i have read uh all of mr davies novels and they are fantastic uh, I oddly enough, I read them because uh, Moxie Fruvis, a Canadian band, oh, has yeah. a song called uh, My Baby Loves a Bunch of Authors, which mentions mm-hmm. Robertson Davies, and that <laughs> made me look up Robertson Davies, and then I read all of his books. I love so, that thanks, story. Moxie Fruvis. <laughs> That's fantastic. I have to say, I mean, as much as I love this, this is actually the better written trilogy. 
I prefer the Cornish trilogy, which came much later. He's he sort of goes exponentially bizarre in that one, so I, I like that. But this is a very tight, really nicely done piece of work. So, all right. So we have a Canadian author, and Scott just mentioned a Canadian band. Uh, let's move on to our panelist who's married to a Canadian. <laughs> Erica, what is your selection? And is it Canadian? It's actually, I don't think it is. I'm not really sure. I don't know a whole lot about this author. Uh, but my first book is a book called Monument by a fellow named Lloyd Biggle Jr., uh, which is was published in 1974. It's a very old science fiction book. And um, I know you said that we didn't have to have a winter theme, but I actually do refer to this book as either my winter book or my bathtub book because I read it every single winter in the bathtub. Um, And it's not actually about winter at all. It's about a planet that is completely a paradise um it's it's almost entirely water it's totally tropical there are wonderful things to eat the temperature is always perfect there are sandy beaches and it's lovely and it's just kind of a nice place to escape to for me in the winter while i'm in a warm bath and it's freezing cold outside (laughs) i think after i move to edmonton i'll be reading it twice every year um (laughs) But anyway, so it takes place far, far in the future when, at a time when interstellar travel is kind of no big deal. Humans have colonized all over the galaxy. And a fellow named Cern O'Brien crash lands his spaceship on this paradise planet. And he eventually realizes that he needs to protect it because eventually some big, terrible, nasty corporation is going to come in and try to take over and, and ruin what these lovely natives on this planet have. Everything is just in perfect balance, and he doesn't want that to get thrown off. So he comes up with a plan, and that's plan with a capital P. Um, And I'm not going to say any more about it than that because I actually want people to read it. And it's one of those books that just unfolds really nicely. Um, I I didn't see the end coming. Maybe you will. I'm not very good at that sort of thing. So, Um, But anyway, sort of hilarity ensues along with a healthy dose of mystery, confusion, frustration, hopelessness. It kind of runs the gamut, goes up and down. It's it's a very quick read. It's very simple. It's just kind of a classic, like, pulpy sci-fi type story. Uh, and apparently it was based on a short story. I didn't know that until I looked it up today to prep for this. But it is one of my all-time favorite books. I just love, love, love it. Wow. Okay, so... Uh, proving that I am a complete ingrate, I have not heard of any of the books that you guys have talked about yet. <laughs> That's great. That's the whole point of the podcast. Yo, yeah. no, it is. That's right. It is. It's yeah. to to help out ingrates like me. <laughs> oh, okay, so so get get ready, brace yourselves, because I can only imagine things are going to get even more impressive now when Scott McNulty makes his selection. So, Scott. Uh, so no pressure. This, this book is about uh, a young boy who was born in Austria, destined for greatness. Oh no! no! <laughs> uh, it is not about Hitler. Uh, it is a book <laughs> called. Uh, I'm going to pick a book that just came out this year, and it's a, a debut novel uh, called Ancillary Justice uh, by Anne Leckie. I guess that's how I don't know how she says her last name, but uh, that's how I say it. So. There you go. Uh, so it's a space opera. It reminded me very much of Ian M. Banks, uh, who is dead, so we won't be reading any more of his books. I will. Well, that's true. Because I've only read one them, of them, two of them. So We won't be reading any new yeah. of his. He won't be producing anything. Fair enough. Uh, and it's very sad. So it's a space opera. Uh, it focuses on this one character uh, called Breck, who is actually 
in uh, in this universe, uh, there are uh, these artificial intelligences that run ships, which just sounds very familiar to the culture, except uh, which is the Ian M. Banks setting. Except these uh, ships all carry uh, ancillaries, uh, which are um, conquered uh, beings that this race conquers and freezes, and then uses their bodies to uh, become an extension of the ship's AI. Uh, so every ship has thousands upon thousands of frozen corpses in its holds so it can send them off and use them as kind of like droids and, you know, fiddle, uh, go to the, the different uh, parts of the ship and perform different functions. So each of the AIs breaks up its consciousness into thousands of different parts uh, and they all act, interact and act independently and they can all share their visions. Uh, and so this is one of these ancillaries that's broken off and you don't really know why it's by itself. Uh, and it's kind of trying to, to it has a, a, a mission in mind, and it's going after the leader of this culture. Uh, this race is called the Radich, and uh, the leader is uh, a person who has broken th their consciousness over thousands of different bodies. So they are on each of the conquered planets that they have, and they have different palaces that they inhabit. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating book, uh, and this, this race, uh, its language has no concept of gender, uh, and so there are lots of different uh, races they, the character interacts with, but it, this person can't really express gender, so you never know what the gender of the character that they're talking about is until another character addresses them. Uh, so it's, very, it's a very interesting read, uh, and it's coming at uh, space opera in a different way than I've ever experienced before, so check it out. I've heard of that one only because uh, I think the author or uh, wrote a blog post about the uh, the challenge of of understanding artificial intelligence from the perspective of that, which is like multiple bodies and 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 the challenge of, of portraying that. I, I just I read that a few weeks ago, so that's very cool. Yes, you should read the book. I will. I will. I'll do that. It's the Scott McNulty guarantee. <laughs> it exists. You guarantee that I should read it. Uh, <laughs> after that, it's my problem. Uh, Glenn, it's your turn. What? I know. Did I read a book? Uh, this book was actually recommended to me by someone who I feel terrible because they said, oh, if you like these books like, I think in one episode I was talking about Shiva 3000 by uh, Jan Lars Jensen and Celestial Matters by Richard Garfinkel, which I could talk about a little bit later too, those good books, but uh, I think I mentioned those in another episode. And they said, oh, if you like that, you should read Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny. And I said, that's funny. I have never read any Roger Zelazny, which makes me a terrible terrible science fiction fan i think it does it does uh because you should basically i mean i've read i think terrible every person, other really I'm, I'm just i'll leave now i'm sorry this podcast scared. is over that's right <laughs> and uh i have a feeling that when i was younger i tried to read something and it was impenetrable and i just never came back to it oh that guy is one of those you know robert silverberg people or something and oh and uh so uh so i picked this up i got it from the library and it is Completely fantastic and amazing, and it was written the year I was born. It won the uh, Hugo that year. It was a finalist for the um, Nebula and for Best Novel, and was kind of a sounds like the basis of his career. And I can see why. Like that was the year he broke out, and he wrote a bazillion books after that, but never revisited this universe. So if you read it, you have to content yourself at some level with the fact that this is it. Like he went here once and it was great. And then he moved on to other things. Um, so the, the premise is, or sorry, it's written a year before my birth, written 1967, won the next year for these awards. So the premise is um, like those other books I mentioned where I kind of, I was kind of enjoying the idea of looking at 
uh, science fiction through the lens of other uh, mythologies. And so celestial matters, for instance, it's the Greek and uh, Chinese and so forth. Like every culture's philosophy about how the world worked pre prior to imperial or empirical uh, science is actually literally true which is kind of cool. So in Lord of Light, it's not quite like that, but it's, uh, it appears to be a planet in which Hindu gods are um, walking around. There's tons of them. They seem to have powers. And as the book goes on, I feel like I shouldn't give away too much because there's this great revelation about you. he unpeels layer and layer and layer uh, away until you actually understand quite how hard a sci-fi novel this is compared to what you think it is when you start. And I think it must have been in an era when there was, uh, you know, there was a big wall between fantasy and sci-fi. And I feel like this is partly an attempt to not pierce the wall, but there is a little bit, but sort of weave in some of the things that are best about myth-making and fantasy into the rocket ship, um, you know, super advanced science uh, world and uh, quite quite lovely. Um, so there are things that are sort of um, very fantasy-ish, even in the middle of hard science and vice versa. Uh, so yeah, I guess I don't want to, I the thing I don't want to tell too much. There's two cool things about it. I found up just looking up the details. One is that, uh, George R. R. Martin has an anecdote about it. So we got to bring him in. He said apparently that Zelazny told him that he had a single pun in his head that made him think of the entire novel. And the pun is so obscure. I'm not even going to tell it. The other is that they were going to make a huge, huge, super expensive motion picture of this film yes. in in, right, in the early 1970s, people have seen the movie, know this. In the and early Jack 1970s, Kirby drew all Jack of Kirby, these right. crazy sketches Pre and all of that. Yeah. And it's it apparently this amazing thing didn't get made, and it was the right, and it was the basis. They used this material. The CIA used it as the cover for exfiltrating. Argo. Right, Argo. Yep. Argo is derived directly from Lord of Light, which may have been why it was that person said. But it's um, – so the reason I liked it so much, though, is it's – it's a very clever in its own way, but it's not too smart for its own good. Like there's a lot of history, uh, Buddhism, um, uh, science fiction, all crammed into the thing. But it's beautiful to read and it's interesting and characters are richly painted and there's betrayal. And um, it's just you feel like he's packed 17 books into one, but it doesn't feel overwritten. It's just he packs the passage of time in there. Really terrifically. And um, I guess the other part is that it's hard to find a novel quite like this. I don't remember reading anything else that really felt like this book to me where um, the, the way in which the characters interact with each other. I, the closest thing is – now, I don't know if uh, anybody – a Dan Simmons fan or a Dan Simmons non-fan? Foreshadowing. Anybody? Okay. I like it. So, yes. so there's a book, uh, not the Hyperion cycle. I read his other cycle, which is called Ilium and Olympos. Yep. Oh, I'm so glad mm -hmm. I didn't choose those. Okay, I'm not going to. Well, I'm not going to bring them up. But I've read them both, and I have. We can talk about you those just after them up. we. I'll do a picture. But um, mm. there are aspects that uh, if Dan Simmons must have read Lord of Light, he must have oh, because sure. there are aspects that are extensions and parallels of it. Now, and that's not to say that Ilium and Olympus were not original works, but but you can feel it. So if you've read those books, you have to go read this, you know, and you should just read it anyway. What? I'm just wondering if I should go back and read. I hated Lord of Light. I really did. You hated Lord of Light. Well, it's, you don't have to love You don't have to love things I love. No, that's no, no, but I, I, liked, mm. I liked the Dan Simmons books, and I read Lord of Light when I was young and stupid, so I'm wondering if maybe I should just revisit it. But this is my thing. I think I read Zelazny when I was like 12 or 13, and I was reading Asimov 
I was reading Asimov. Mm-hmm. I say in this horrible tone at the time. Yeah. You know, that guy Asimov only wrote <laughs> 700,000 books. Um, people yep. hated him. Picked, it, picked in episode but, 99, by the way. But, yeah. So. That's true. I wanted to pick the Foundation series again, yeah. but I didn't. But, yeah. So, you know, I was reading Asimov back then, and Zelazny compared to Asimov. Wait, A to Z, mm-hmm. not intentional. Uh, you'd say, like, wow, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, and it's so floored, and what the hell? And you don't know anything. And now, 30 plus years later, like, I have an understanding of mythology. I like the incredible, rich, layered illusion that would have been meaningless to me. So I don't know. I, I think I would not. And if I, like I say, I don't think I read this one, but I bet I read Zelazny back then because I remember shying away from him. You probably read the Amber, Chronicles of Amber That's stuff. That's what that I was, did. Yeah, that yeah. was his most popular stuff yeah. by far. I started with that right. and then oh, went on yeah. to Lord of Light and was like, oh, this what is not the, the same. I don't this? like this at all. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I'm a big uh, Dan Simmons fan and I actually read Ilium and uh, didn't, pick up and that's essentially one book split into two volumes and i didn't yes. pick up volume two i was like nah, nah. I I'm, just I'm completely a weird completist like sometimes Ilium, so i dan dan yeah i'm a completist at a certain level i really was like there's parts of the story i want to know and then i was like oh it's dan simmons like oh yeah. okay oh that 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 completed thing is is the worst i have read so many crappy series all the way through i think we did a podcast about that lisa <laughs> yes well i like what you guys were talking yeah. about dune because i read you know i've read like 14 dune novels and i will not read the other 300 no, good. Oh you Lord, you Lord. draw the line right there. Yeah, Fourteen is really getting good at two ninety five, though. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They get. That's what they told me about the. Um, oh, they're going to be so mad at me when I say this about the the Jim Butcher. Um, um, what's I, it called? Oh, oh, oh yeah, the the Harry Dresden Harry Dresden Files. novels, and they're like, you got to read them. They're great. Oh. You got to read them. They're great. And then I read the God. first one. And I said it's not that great, and they said, no, 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 it gets better. I'm like, I don't know if I believe you now, because you said they were great in the first one, not that good. So yeah. Yeah, I no. sometimes think people no. people confuse that people confuse the cumulative satisfaction and and cross and the thrill of making connection between different books. That that whole ha ha, I know something about this whole series with the thrill of picking up the book for the first time and getting sucked yeah. into the world. Or, or maybe there's some amortization. It's like the more people who yeah. read this, the less the less painful <laughs> it'll be for any individual one. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I feed off Harry the psychic Potter. anguish of you reading yeah. the book. Book vampire <laughs> Series book vampires is what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to go um, because I always go last. Bye, and, Jason. And we were just goodbye. <laughs> this podcast is over. No, and we were just talking about Dan Simmons. And believe it or not, that actually is what I am picking. I'm picking a Dan Simmons novel. Dan Simmons is what? well known for his sci-fi. We talked about the Hyperion books before. We just mentioned Ilium. He's got some... Fa- he, he's really kind of a, a genre crosser. He's got some horror books that he's written um, and some fantasy. And so, of course, I'm going to pick his one completely mainstream non-genre novel which is called Phases of Gravity. I've mentioned mm. it before. It is mm. it is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, it's about an astronaut who... Um, it's it's set in the 80s. I think it was written in the 80s. Who loses, um, loses uh, people close to him in the uh, Challenger disaster. Um, he is rethinking his life. Um, there, there are hints of, of that this might be uh, more of of a genre story and uh but really it's not in the end not to give too much away i mean it really is a story about this guy trying to think about his life he he you know he was an astronaut he's been in space i think he walked on the moon um but now he's retired and he's lost these people and he's really wondering what the point of his entire life is and it's a it's a beautiful um 
story. I mean, I hate to say it's a beautiful tale of love and loss, but uh, you know that that's the that's the summary on Goodreads, and you know that's what it is. It is that, and um, and I try to read this every you know every. I don't know, five years or something like that. I'm not a big rereader of books, but I, I find it kind of beautiful. And I also, he's a really good writer. And um, I found this this novel, um, you know, it, it's appealing because of the writing. And, and I also felt like it was personally significant to Dan Simmons in some way, that he was he was talking about some themes that maybe he felt like he didn't want to wrap around a horror novel or a sci-fi novel. Um and and yet, because it's about astronauts and people who died in the space shuttle explosion and things like that, it has a lot of elements that will be very familiar to readers of uh, sci-fi, especially and people who are big science nerds. And uh, and I'm th- I'm those people. So there are those people? Um, so it it works for me on that level, even though it you know it is not um, uh, it's not what I think anyone should call a sci-fi novel. It really is just sort of a mainstream novel, and it's beautiful, and I, I love it a lot, and I, I encourage people to read it. It's not really well-known at all. It's probably the oddball of his entire output as a novelist, and it is um, it is my favorite. I, I do love Hyperion quite a lot, but um, Faces of Gravity is my favorite Dan Simmons novel. I'm so glad you recommended one because I vowed to never read it again, but your recommendation is so strong I will read it. Hyperion, I think, is one of the best science fiction novels ever written and it angers me so much everything else he's written so i may have to go read that to try to get the taste of fall or uh, rise of endymion out of my mouth (laughs) (laughs) but he he also wrote a historical thriller oh yes uh, drood which i enjoyed greatly and it uh, features uh, charles dickens and uh, wilkie collins who is the author of the first uh, many consider the first mystery novel as an unreliable narrator uh, and it's quite good. I, I also uh, like his The Crook Factory, which is about the it's it's loosely based on the spy ring that Ernest Hemingway set up when he was living in Cuba. Totally different from everything else. Again. So Danson just churns out like he's got a, a dial. He spins the wheel and then he, something <laughs> stick. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 Let's take a moment away from reading to talk about more reading. And it is our sponsor. This episode, a uh, brand new sponsor of the incomparable BookBub. BookBub. And joining me to, uh, you heard him just there, <laughs> to talk about BookBub is a satisfied BookBub cu- customer and also incomparable panelist, Lex Friedman. Hi, Lex. Thanks for being in the commercial. Hi, Jason. It's my pleasure to join you in this commercial. Couldn't show up for the actual episode, <laughs> could you? No, it was after my bedtime when you did that. Yeah, part. I know. So BookBub, you were telling me about this, that this is a this is a way to discover books that you love and you get a deal on ebooks too. Right. What's what's great about BookBub is, you know, I researched them when they came to me and said, hey, we want to sponsor some podcasts. And then the, before I ever sold them any podcast ads like this very ad, uh, I became a customer and used it literally every day since I first discovered it. So the way it works is they send you they send you emails with alerts about like uh, free and bargain ebooks that that are that you might be interested in. Right. right. You, you tell them, A, what kind of books you like and B, what kind of readers you have. So for me, it's like I have Kindle and I have iBooks and. And so each day, seven days a week, I get an email from them with new cheap books, new discounts on books or free books uh, in the categories I've selected for the devices I've selected. And I, I buy them every day. It's the only daily email I get that I intentionally read every day and look forward to and click. And I've bought, I don't know, 30 books in the past three weeks, thanks to them. Be wary. They will actually find books that you're interested in that are 
on on sale and you'll you'll be buying more books if you if you sign up for bookbub i'll tell you one that i'm reading right now i told you i didn't have a book recommendation but now i do from oh, bookbub excellent. this is the perfect time to share that perfect episode lex they sent me a, a thing they said you you might like this book the accidental bachelor and i like humorous sort of first person novels and this is that it's you know this uh guy finn McAllister, who's a little down on his luck and is kind of reeling his best friends are still his old friends from high school even though he's in his 30s now but it's a very funny book even though it's also an emotional book and i i paid i don't know two dollars for it or something because bookbub told me the day it was on sale and this isn't stuff that's just coming from like random random shady ebook download stores this is like this book is on sale at amazon or this book is on sale at ibooks and and things like that right yeah, exactly. And it's, it's you know, sometimes it's self-published authors, but it's also 100% mainstream books with actual publishers and authors who we've heard of and New York Times bestsellers and things. It's just whatever they find that's on sale in the topics and in the stores that you uh, have indicated you want, that's what they send you. It's pretty great. All right, Lex, you got to break it to me now. What does BookBub cost? Okay. Uh, how much would you pay? $10? $100,000? For a personalized recommendation service that every day tells me what... Uh, uh, books that I'm going to like are available as ebooks uh, for free or for cheap. I, I don't know, a million dollars? Well, guess what? It's free. It's free oh, to sign up. Free? Yeah, you pay for the books, obviously, and that's their business model. They make a tiny little bit of money on the books you buy through their affiliate links. It's a pretty, pretty brilliant model. So you just put in your email address at bookbub.com, slash incomparable, by the way, would really be really nice. And that's it. You sign up and they start sending you, you check the boxes and you say, I'm interested in science fiction or I'm interested in humor or I'm interested in horror or fantasy. And I've got, like you said, I've got uh, iBooks and Kindle or or, or whatever ebook readers you've got, and you press the button, and then that's it, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, according to BookBub, they've got like two million people. I, I've never even heard of this before, and it sounds it sounds great. But they've got two million subscribers and have already sold um, twenty five million ebooks. It's kind of amazing. So obviously, it, this works. I can't believe how many you know books I've bought from it. I never expected I was going <laughs> to buy a book every day that it happens. But it's like, well, I mean, I, this sounds good, and for a dollar, it's worth the risk. For two dollars, it's worth the risk, of course. So basically, out of these twenty five million ebook downloads, you're like twenty million. Of <laughs> yeah, and I, I will yeah. say I have read now three books that. I bought from them. I'm in. The, I'm about to finish up another one, and I have enjoyed them all. So that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to getting my BookBub email tomorrow. What's your URL again? BookBub.com. That's B-O-O-K-B-U-B. Like if Wolverine were talking to you and you'd say, I'm reading a book, bub. That's exactly where you want to go. Slash incomparable. BookBub.com slash incomparable to sign up. It's free, and you will be a satisfied customer like Lex here and mm. get lots of books on sale or for free that are that you're interested in, which is it's an awesome idea. Yeah. Great idea. Thanks, BookBub. Thank you, BookBub, for sponsoring The Incomparable. Thank you, Lex, for making a suggestion right in the middle of the, the ad and for dropping in through magic of podcast time warping to, mm. be, uh, to be on the podcast. Always a pleasure. I can't believe you're doing this at a waking hour for me. Just for you. <laughs> All right, let's go back to the people who are the night owls, and thanks again to BookBub and Lex. All right, that's one round through. We'll, we'll do it a couple more times. So let's go back up to the top of the list. It's also the only person on this uh, podcast tonight whose name is not five letters long. Lisa. You may go first. I could add an extra vowel, perhaps. Leosa. 
You make up. L E E S A. Oh, <laughs> Le- Lisa. Like Entertainment Tonight. Lisa. <laughs> oh, with a oh, my Z. God. oh, that always bugged me growing up. Or a Z, Z, as they say in Canada. <laughs> yes, the Z. Mm-hmm. Back to Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> my second pick, actually, in the spirit of unhinged lunacy, is, um, a Neil, Ste- is, is Neil Stephenson's Zodiac. And oh, yeah. It, yeah, because it well it predates it predates the the books that put him on the map, um, Snow Crash and the Diamond Age, and the way he describes it is as an eco terrorist thriller, and um, it it feels very of its time because it was written during the 1980s. The internet isn't really a factor. It's just this very smart, very misanthropic genius organic chemist named Sangamon Taylor who simply wants to clean up um, the Boston Harbor, and he works with a Greenpeace like group. And over the course of the investigation, he's trying where, where he's trying to uh, get polluters to quit dumping heavy metals into the harbor. They run across like a death metal cult. Um, there's a long um, digression on the merits of Vietnamese food, or as we call it, a, a, a Neil Stephenson novel. That long, yeah, no. long digression. <laughs> no, well, no, it makes you really, but it, it makes you really appreciate the differences between different types of, um, you know, South S- S- South Asian cuisine. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> it's just funny that he always has them. The energy is fantastic. It's kind of lunatic and unhinged, and again, it's a really fast read. So if you don't have the time and or the biceps to haul around some of his later work hmm. this is the kind of thing you can pick up and easily get through in like a day or two um it's great I, i've read it too it is it is huge fun and and i love his relationship with the elderly librarian where in order to get any information he has to listen to her conversation first and, and she's always talking about like going shopping for her granddaughter's christening dresses or or other things like that and it's just what i like about sangamon taylor as a character is his fundamental respect for people who know what they're doing and do it well um because that's something that I find a little off-putting about, and I don't think it's in his work specifically, but I find it off-putting in hacker culture type stuff in general, is there tends to be this very left-brain, right-brain divide and a clear hierarchy of people who are useful versus people who are not. And all through this book, he has a really clear, you know, it, it's clear Sangamon respects people who, who, who know their stuff. And I, I like a character who, 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 who is smart and is not threatened by other people's smart or core competency. I think it's a good thing to model. So... Yeah. Also, it's super funny. It I mean, is. I, it's hilarious. It's laugh out loud funny. It is good. Yeah. Yeah. That that where the where I forget the name of the organization. It's on the fourth floor, and he's got this throwaway line about how they have bumper stickers on all the stair risers, so that by the time you get to the office, you're both out of breath and thoroughly indoctrinated. <laughs> and it was just this beautiful. It's just like he's got an entire chapter devoted to to commuting in Boston on by bike that that has to be read to be believed. And if you've ever been to Boston or tried driving in it, you're like, oh, this is a documentary. Believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I have a theme for tonight's books, it's 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 gateways to the author, where where these are the types of things where you dip your toes in, and you're like, okay, I like this guy, and then you can and then you can get more into their work, and they may not be the best known things these people have done, but I think they're the most accessible to to people who haven't read them yet, and I highly recommend Zodiac for anybody who I don't like fantasy or I don't like sci-fi or I don't like tech stuff because this isn't about that. This is simply about a guy trying to do his job. How many of those people are listening to this podcast? <laughs> all of curious. them. I have some. Fr- I have some friends who listen. Okay, they should all listen because yeah. then they'll learn. They'll. I don't know. They'll learn something. Put it on their. Get it. Put it in their stocking. That's what we're saying. Put it in their yeah. stocking. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. slip it in their stocking. And they'll be like, "What is this book? <sighs> is it astrology related in some way?" Because <laughs> I love that stuff. I have some glenning, but I'll save it for my turn. Okay, oh, as you should. No glenning. 
No glen. <laughs> I have a strict anticipate it. No glenning policy. <laughs> Zodiac is part of his earlier work, so it's before he was so famous that they couldn't cut anything out of his books. Yes. So it's less no. than eight hundred pages long. Yeah. It has an ending and everything. It's 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 fast and funny and smart and it has a clear moral point of view and uh and it's an not tedious. Yeah, and an ending, yes. Yes. Right, it's good. good. Zodiac, yeah, good book. David, you're up. Well, a couple of years ago, I wrote a play about Vincent Van Gogh, and ever since, uh, um, yeah, you see the foreshadowing pain. Are you back recommending here. we read your play? No, <laughs> watch it now. Watch available? It. No, no, no. <laughs> Soon to be kickstarted. No, but yeah, as a result, I pick up books and things about Van Gogh now because I have all this knowledge stuck in my head, and it's interesting. And I go, oh wow, they got that right. They got that wrong. Like when I watched Vincent and the Doctor, and going. Oh wow, you could have done this really like true to life, but uh, you screwed that up. But that's okay because it's Doctor Who fun. Um, and this is a book, and I, I love Doctor Who. Just saying, um, this is a book by Christopher Moore. It is the maybe the one that Lisa did not mention. Uh, his most recent novel called Sacre Bleu, yes, a comedy dart. <laughs> and there's a, a theory. Uh, in the, it's in the most recent gigantic Van Gogh biography, which is actually very good. Um, there's a theory that he did not commit suicide, that he was murdered. And the authors of the biography go into really interesting detail and you go, well, all right, that's not implausible. And lo and behold, just after that came out, came Sacre Bleu, where the idea is that uh, Vincent's friends, a baker turned painter and another friend of his, Toulouse-Lautrec, basically act as Holmes and Watson to solve Van Gogh's murder because he talks about having been pursued around France by a crooked little color man. And he has become deathly afraid of a, a certain shade of blue, a sacred blue. And it's just nuts in that way that Christopher Moore can be. But again, it's, you know, it's like fool. It's a much more mature, much more assured novel. He's sort of weaving in all of this, uh, real life detail and he he does an excellent job documenting like he he has a blog just for this book it's filled and the book and the blog are both filled with pictures and filled with here's where this incident came from here's where this is set here's where this idea came from and he's just woven it all together in this really funny really good thriller but really funny sacre bleu all right wow two from Christopher Moore, two from the guy who I, whose name I could never even uh, recall. So, <laughs> wow, big big changes afoot. Uh, let's move on to Erica. What do you have? I have <clears throat> okay. Well, I don't have a series exactly. Uh, I, it was really hard for me to just pick three books because there are very few standalone books that I even read, much alone, much, let alone like a lot. Um, so what I did was I I picked a series and then picked the first book in the series. And I figured that's a good thing to start with. And then if, if you don't like that book, then don't read the rest of the series. But if you do, then you've got some other awesome books in front of you. And how great is that? Uh, so Robin Hobb is one of my favorite fantasy authors of the last several decades. And she's actually written a series of trilogies, I guess. Um, but the book that I want to talk about is the first book of the second trilogy that takes place sort of in this same world. The uh, The book that I'm talking about is Ship of Magic. And it is really, really cool. Um, 
It's the first book of the Live Ship Traders trilogy. That's the second trilogy, as I mentioned. And it follows the uh, the Vestrit family of Bingtown. And this Vestrit family owns a live ship. And a live ship is a ship that's made of this magical wizard wood. And once three generations of family captains have died on board the ship, the figurehead actually comes to life and has a personality and talks and stuff. And it's just very magical and cool. And only live ships in this world can travel up the Rainwild River to trade with the mysterious Rainwild families who trade fabulous and magical goods that you can't find anywhere else. So that's sort of setting the stage. That's that's where the world in which this takes place. Um, but there are really two stories that are taking place throughout the book, kind of in parallel. So one story is following the Vestrit family. Uh, the old captain is dying at the beginning of the book, and his daughter Althea is, is fairly young, but she thinks she's going to inherit the ship because she's been sailing on it since she was a youngster and is very connected and bonded with this live ship. Um, but of course, things don't turn out quite as she planned. Uh, things kind of go awry for her from there and it, it sort of follows her her journey and also a little bit of the what happens with her family as she works to uh, get her live ship back um, but at the same time there's also another parallel story that seems completely unconnected uh, there's a pirate captain named Kennet who is looting and pillaging left and right but he wants to capture a live ship for himself and um, he's kind of a terrible character but accidentally does some good things sort of a, a, a weird it, it's kind of an interesting thing everybody the people that follow him begin thinking that he's this wonderful character um, but really he's just doing everything selfishly for himself but accidents make it look like he's this wonderful fellow um, so I won't say too much more about it than that honestly I don't usually dig books about pirates I'm not a big fan <laughs> of the whole pirate thing um, and I don't particularly and I don't particularly Arr. like like politics, uh, which comes into things later in the trilogy. There are some that's some very interesting sort of political machinations in this this town and some of the countries. Pirate politics. Yeah, there are pirate politics in here, too. <laughs> and those are two things that I just don't usually like. You would think that the whole point of being pirates would be that you rejected. <laughs> the, the... Uh-huh. But it is it is a very good book. I I like this particular trilogy of them the best. So the first trilogy is the Farseer trilogy, and then there's another one after this one, which is I think the Tawny Man trilogy, and then she actually just recently wrote a tetralogy, uh, which I haven't yet read, but I got it for Christmas early, so I'm going to be getting to that. But so far, this this series of, of books that take place in the uh, the Bingtown area of this world, um, I think they're the warmest of, of the, uh, the trilogies, um, and I don't know... It, I think it's perhaps because the setting is just a little bit more colorful. Um, and the one thing I didn't touch on was that in addition to these two things, there's sort of a, a, a loose framing device that sort of pops in and out um, that's told from the point of view of these giant serpent creatures that are just sort of like swimming under the water. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense until later in the trilogy, so I won't say much about that. But uh, <laughs> it, it gets really, really cool. There's sort of like ancient secrets that are coming to light later on down the road and I, I highly recommend giving it a try and then um but it ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger so be ready for that but if you haven't enjoyed the first book then it doesn't make sense to keep going and you're not really missing mm-hmm. anything by jumping out at that point all right ship yeah. of magic good one i haven't heard of that one either so it's on the list and Ooh. that brings us to scott ah ah Speaking surprise <laughs> you went after erica last time it shouldn't be that uh, big a shock well, I thought there was a snaking round thing involved. No. I don't know. 
I'm very confused by this draft format. You can pick a snake-related book if you like, but... Oh, all right, well, I'll pick Two Serpents Rise by Max Gladstone. What? <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually on my list, so... Oh, no! Very ophidian of you, Scott. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for any animal reference with my list of books. I figured. <laughs> uh, Capybara. So this is uh, the second in a series, uh, kind of loosely grouped together series, so you can read them in any order. Uh, the series is the Craft series, and basically Max Gladstone envisions a world where there is, uh, there were gods that were actual things, right? And they were magical, and they had followers, and they had powers, and they basically took care of the world, and humans kind of slowly figured out how to craft magic themselves, and uh, overthrew the gods, killed a bunch of them, uh, trapped some of them and kind of siphon off their power to do a bunch of things. Uh, and basically, he imagines if there is this world, then there must be bureaucrats that run this world. So the first book, uh, called Three Parts Dead, is about a, a lawyer firm that specializes basically in deity arbitrage. Uh, and so this this deity that this town is using to power everything is slowly dying, uh, and Many towns kind of have claims over different parts of the gods, so they hire this lawyer firm to kind of settle it down. Uh, the second book is set in a different city. Uh, <laughs> Are you making this up? I am not making this up. <laughs> this is the craziest thing. Oh, okay. uh, this, All right, sorry. Go ahead. Excuse me. The second book, Two Serpents Rise, is set wow. in a different city in the same world uh, where uh, there is this character called the Red King who has uh, a company called Red King Consolidated that uh, owns the rights to supply water to the city, and the city's in a desert, uh, and he read the Red King is a, a powerful uh, human magician who killed the god of this city uh, and kind of got immortality, but in the process transformed himself into a walking skeleton, uh, and he also loves to drink coffee. Uh, and the main character is kind of uh, his, his troubleshooter, uh, called Caleb, uh, who has to figure out uh, what's happening with this reservoir uh, where uh, an explosion has happened, and he has to figure out... Uh, and then the water uh, takes some demonic forms and starts attacking people, uh, which uh, negatively impacts the company, and so uh, the Red King is upset because he feels like he's going to lose this city's water contract because the water is attacking people, uh, <laughs> so he needs to get it figured out. Uh, and that is basically the story of the book, and it is just delightful. Wow, that's another book I have never heard of. That's pretty wild. Actually, there's a few things in common with Shiva 3000. Not not a ton, but if you like this book, you might also like... <laughs> mm. Sorry. Good job, Scott. Thanks. Top that, Glenn. <gasps> oh. Uh, all right, oh. So, uh... <laughs> also taken by surprise. <laughs> what? This is a book... It's not that complicated a format. Go ahead. <laughs> My friend, so I'm recommending a book. This is nonfiction, and it is written by a friend of mine. Uh, my editor at the Economist, Tom Standage, wrote a book that I am really enjoying, and I'm not just saying that. He, Tom, has, and so uh, the, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet Mr. Stevenson and be at his house because uh, there was a little book reception for Tom when he passed through uh, town and the book tour for this. And the book is called Writing on the Wall. And Tom writes these books that are about why nothing is new again. They should all be called like there. There is nothing new under the sun or something because they're um, they're. 
explaining the context of what we think is new now and we think we're sort of sorting through in society, but turns out has remarkably similar underpinnings and echoes back through history, even when it seems like the technology couldn't exist. So writing on the wall is, it's, uh, I think the subtitle is uh, uh, Social Networking the First 2,000 Years. And it is, it's really charming and hilarious, even if you have a good grasp of history. And I, my Roman history isn't so good, but there's basically like pr- before printing presses, uh, Romans, even at distant outposts, that had all these uh, you know slaves and scribes who would write copies of things all the time, and they were circulating letters. The Romans had an incredible distribution system before the mails, so people were actually sending blog entries back and forth <laughs> across the Appian Way, memes. and it was it's it is hilarious. And so you read this, you're like, okay, this is actually he's not really stretching the case. Like people would write stuff, and then they would annotate it, and they return it, and they mark it with comments, and it would come back and it would be redistributed and people would get angry and there'd be political fights and flame wars, all with people writing out by, you know, longhand. And some of the scribes were particularly well-liked because they had developed their own shorthand system so they could take notes more quickly and some were very fast and people who were particularly wealthy could have a ton of people transcribing constantly to produce these things. And so it starts there and it goes through like sort of every era in which we sort of think, well, this was before this or, oh, well, newspapers did this. And he talks about the consolidation of social media into mass media. And then what he thinks is this glorious, you know, not perfect, but this reopening of a consolidation from all this interaction among people, even newspapers for a long time, early newspapers were mostly publishing dispatches and letters from other people. They didn't do their own reporting. So they were actually quite social in their own way, even though they were a mass method of distribution. So uh, lovely book. And all of Thomas' books are actually um, quite neat. The Victorian Internet, the mechanic, the book about the mechanical Turk, the chess playing machine, um, all kinds. He's got these just wonderful books about that peak beneath the surface of what we think was is going on in society or technology and and this is his latest. So it's a little bit of I'm sorry, a little bit of nepotism, but I'm sure I'm sure uh, it can be forgiven because it's a good book. I'm going to fully support your nepotism foreshadowing. Oh my. <laughs> All right. So so uh writing on the wall, Tom Standage. All right, so I have found a theme for mine um uh, that I, I actually was looking at my list and realizing that I do have a theme here. My theme is things that are not science fiction novels that should appeal in some way to people who read science fiction novels. So we had Phases of Gravity, which is by a, a writer of genre novels of many kinds. Um and now I'm gonna move on to um a book by Nick Hornby that I've mentioned. He's one of my uh, two favorite contemporary novelists, really, um, and I could recommend many of his books, some of which have slight science fictional overtones, but I'm going to recommend a memoir that he wrote that has been turned into not one, but two kind of lackluster to poor motion pictures, um, but the memoir is great, and it's Fever Pitch. It became a romantic comedy with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore. It also became another romantic mm. comedy with Colin Firth. Slightly better. The, the Colin Firth one is better. Yeah. Well, it's got Colin Firth, so yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Colin, Colin Firth goes a long way. Versus Jimmy Fallon, sure. Mm-hmm. He also has dialogue in it, too, which is... So so Fever Pitch, Nick Hornby, wonderful, I've said this before, wonderful writer, just as a stylist, wonderful. His essays are great. His novels are great. If you want to read a novel of his, go read High Fidelity, even if you've seen the movie. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful novel. But Fever Pitch, the reason I'm picking it is um, it is the best thing I've ever read about being a fan. 
And it's very specifically about being a sports fan. But even if you're mm. not a sports fan, even if you're just in th- really, I mean, really, really enthusiastic <laughs> about things, about something, um, it, this is his memoir about being a completely crazy fan of Arsenal, the London, the North London Football Club, soccer, we would call it here. I don't know if they call it soccer in Canada, but they would say Zed if it had a Z in it. <laughs> soccer. He he's a he, and he's an insane fan, like insane like moves to where the stadium is and his apartment is near there. Oh and um and he's he's superstitious, so he does things like gets up to get something and something good happens and he stays in that spot for the next like two hours. Um, So it's funny. It is definitely a knowing portrayal of how he's allowing his obsession to kind of rule his life. Um, If you're, if you're a fan of any sports uh, teams of any sort, you will really get it. But I think if you're a fan of things, you will appreciate this story of why people get enthusiastic about things and why they hold them so close to their heart and what it means to be a fan and the good and the bad of it. What 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 makes you so excited to be a fan and also the kind of crazy uh, things you do and the, the, the things that might not be logical, but you do them anyway because of the love that you've got for whatever that thing is that you love. And, um, you know, recently there's been a whole genre of uh, a series of documentaries about people who are totally obsessed with some really small thing and I always find those fascinating because you know we what we're obsessed with can really differ and you might be the guy who's obsessed with playing Donkey Kong and that's a great movie but um, you might just be a fan of of soccer or of this one particular team or some other sports team or some other TV show or movie or whatever um, so really funny um, really heartfelt, and I think says something about what it's like to be a fan. So, Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby, and that's my that's my choice. And with the end of that round, I'm going to take another break to tell you about our second sponsor. It's Lynda.com. They're back for another sponsorship on The Incomparable. I really appreciate it. Um, Lynda.com is a website where you find lots of different subjects and take courses, and there's detailed videos um, and sample files to teach you about technical stuff, uh, creative software, business-related materials, great how-to material taught by the experts. Um, In the last couple of weeks, I took a course about an iPad audio tool called Aurea with a guy named Garrick Chow and uh, did a sample to try and see if I could edit a podcast on my iPad instead of on my Mac like I normally do using this app called Aurea. Very cool. Um, Learned a lot. Did a sample podcast. Uh, I think the answer is that yes, you can absolutely edit complex podcasts on the iPad uh, using relatively low-priced pieces of software. Aurea is about twenty-five bucks for the uh, low-end version. Um, the Lynda.com content stepped me through it. I was able to do a sample of one of the other podcasts that I work on. I feel like the software maybe uh, is not quite advanced yet for the incomparable purposes, but for uh, slightly sim- simpler podcasts. It's actually pretty great, and I would not have had any idea how to get started. I would have been completely at sea, I think, in Aurea um, if I hadn't had the lynda.com series to explain the app and walk me through, and I was able to switch between different sections. There was some music production stuff, 
in part of the chorus, and I skipped over that because I really wanted to move to figure out how the the compressor and the expander and the uh, EQ worked, and there was a great session on that. And then he also referred to other lynda.com courses that I could get even more detail about how to use those tools better. So very cool. That's my first experience doing lynda.com in years, and it was great. And I've got a lot more to learn about web stuff um, and brush up on my JavaScript and my CSS and responsive design and things like that that I'm looking forward to. But they've got a lot. They've got Apple course material, learn about Mavericks. There are lots of design stuff. The entire Adobe Creative Suite, Microsoft Excel, uh, photography, videography, songwriting, all sorts of different things that you can learn through lynda.com. And for that one fee, you can learn all of this different stuff with great high-quality video. This is not YouTube-level video. This is really professional, high-quality video instruction from the experts. So here's the deal. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with a free trial to access the entire lynda.com library. Here's how you sign up. Visit lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A. lynda.com slash incomparable to start the free trial. L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash incomparable and that helps them know that we sent you and that's good for both of us in that trial you get unlimited access to the courses they've got more than 2,000 courses and new ones are added the experts are going to be teaching you these things there's all sorts of different topics so you are going to get a chance to learn stuff for free on us from lynda.com so give it a try lynda.com l-y-n-d-a dot com slash incomparable and thank you so much to lynda.com for sponsoring the incomparable Back to Lisa. Okay. Well, in keeping with the theme of entry-level reading for authors you may or may not have actually considered, I'm going to go back to the 1980s um, and early 90s, and I'm going to recommend the book um, Tagana by Guy Gavriel Kay. Woo! Oh, yay! I knew Erica would like it, but I, don't, I, like, I, I like it in the confirmation. Um, yeah. And um, I, ha- I have kind of a... a He's one of those authors where I'll read anything he's written, but I've gotten more critical of his his later work. Um, Ditto. Well, I feel like his language has gotten really stylized and precious in the last ten years or so. Like I, I've read both of the I've read both of the books that he uh, wrote after doing all that research on like the Han, Han Dynasty, um, like River of Stars and Under Heaven, and it's it's just there which I'm not recommending, but like the language there is kind of almost a parody of his early stuff. But Tagana is, I think, the fourth book he wrote after um, a trilogy, which I would also recommend. But the reason I'm telling you all to read Tagana is not only does this give you an idea of this guy's language, which, again, is is very, um, I hesitate to use the word precious, but it's very specific and very sentimental in a way. But um, it's it's the book is about a group of revolutionaries who are seeking to overthrow a wizard who has in effect managed to erase the very name of their country from existence. Mm. So it's about the limits of zealotry and when your moral crusade is or isn't terribly moral. Um, there are of course some soap opera type complications where one guy is disowned by his mother. Another one had an affair with his sister who is now sleeping with the wizard. Um, uh, but there are there are some some it, it's funny which again seems to have leached out some of Kay's later work. It's funny, it's smart, it's incredibly well researched because there's a lot of parallels to Italian history during the Renaissance. Um, the magic is an element, but it's not um, poof and then a wizard waves his hands and things happen. It's it's actually used as a tactical um, deployment, 
And um, it's a book about national identity and nation building and at what point um, your, your political ideologies become too corrosive for you to actually hold on to them. Um, so if you like fantasy, especially fantasy about worlds that seem to be rooted in, in our own world's history, I, I would highly recommend that. And then once you've decided whether or not you like Tagana, you can run, um, not walk and read the um, Summer Tree Trilogy. Double woo uh, for that. Yeah, no, I love the Fiona of Our Tapestry. Like, that's one of my favorite um, trilogies of all time. But I didn't want to recommend a trilogy because, you know, omnibus problem and all that. And um, I also <laughs> thought, well, it's kind of, it's. I, I'd rather just say, all right, read this, see if you like the guy. And then if you do, you can jump into the trilogy, which has, like, crazy Arthurian parallels and, and, and you know, dwarves who make crystal art and... and Wolves that talk and other stuff like that, but but you know, start with this first, and um, for the love of God, stay away from the later stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord, calibrate your your expectations accordingly. <laughs> yeah, I kind of have this complaint about William Gibson too, who is another author I really really love, and um, mm. I mean, I there are there are, I can probably recite parts of of the Neuromancer trilogy, um, and that that can't be healthy. But I sort of, but I sort of feel like some of his his later work, the language has almost become a parody of the um, the style and perspective that he had as a younger writer. And part of it is, you know, you simply get into the patterns of what works for you. And I still think he has a lot of really interesting things to say and a lot of great stories. I just think that that there's a lot of of, of language shortcuts or or, or um, overheated prose that, that 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 could use a good editing. Yep, that happens with a lot of successful writers later on. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, they, they they get successful and they're like, oh, I know it works, and you're like, well, <laughs> you know, I could only read a description about a fine leather shirt so many times. All right, David, it's your turn. Okay, I'm just gonna start with the first paragraph of this book because it says everything about reading. You were about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Ooh. Relax, concentrate, let the world around you fade. Best close the door. The TV is always on in the next room. Tell the others, no, I don't want to watch TV. Raise your voice, they won't hear you. Yell, I'm beginning to read Italo Calvino's new novel. Or if you prefer, don't say anything and just hope they'll leave you alone. And it's like, this book uh, kind of, again, blew my mind and changed the way I thought about what you could do with fiction and what, you know, because what it is, uh, every other chapter is written in the second person present tense. So it's you are doing this and eventually you meet a woman and she is also a reader. But the alternating chapters are chapters of the books that the two of you are reading. <laughs> and each one is a different genre. Each one breaks off at a really climactic, exciting moment. And then the characters, the, the, the two of you are drawn into a mysterious plot involving books and mystery and intrigue and the elements of the different chapters start working their way into the reality of the book and eventually you fall in love you get married and at the very end uh, she says turn off your light aren't you tired of reading and hmm. you say just a moment i've almost finished if on a winter's night a traveler by italo calvino it's just you know after that you don't need Bright Lights, Big City. You don't need any of these other books written in second person present. It's like, he did it. Go away, do something else. <laughs> but it is it is just, you know, metafiction on a grand level. No one has done it better. And and the, the different genre chapters are beautiful pastiches 
of the different styles. It's, oh, it's just so much fun. All right. I, I've never even heard of that. Idolo Covina is a terrific writer. He's well translated. I mean, the translations mm. are like they're readable. They don't feel like translation. Cosmic Comics right. is hilarious and crazy. Like it's Invisible you know, Cities. Invisible Cities. He's also right. He's a terrific. Like uh, straight fiction. I read a book about a communist. You know, watching the vote, uh, the polls to prevent fraud. It was this very interesting meditation. But it was, um, you know, post war, post World War Two Italy. I read some of his short stories. It's like kind of everything he writes, whatever genre type it is, is fascinating. Oh yeah, and nothing is. I mean, he doesn't repeat himself. Yeah. Every book is its own thing, and even his books about writing, like. Um, the posthumous six memos for the next millennium. Mm, just beautiful. If if you want to be a, a writer, and especially a fiction writer, go find that book. That and the art of literature. Both just, you know, again, you don't need anything else after those. So if you'd like to stop reading books, <laughs> read, read those, and then you say, all right, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Save, I'm save done. them for last. I'm done. Read the rest of ours yes. first. Yes. My brain is full. <laughs> yep, that's it. Well, I mean, to be honest, that's what happened when I read Watchmen the first time. was like, okay, like not going to read comics, comics for a while. So. Not, I'm kind of done. Uh, that, that, that was good. And not in a bad way, but like, nope, you did it. These other guys, mm-mm, don't, no. Nope. I know we already mentioned Hyperion, but that was my reaction to Hyperion. I read this and I'm like, I don't ever need to read science fiction again. <laughs> this is perfect. And then I read, then I then made three, the mistake. Three, three more books. Then you read Endymion. Um, should have gone with your gut. Yeah, Dan Simmons doesn't get paid if you stop reading his books after that one. I should have plunged the daggers in my eyes. The world then. is full of those writers who are like, well, I could make this book perfect, but then they wouldn't buy my other books. So yeah. leave them wanting yeah. more. Erica, what's your third selection? Well, actually, before I get to my third selection, I just realized that there was something really important that I forgot to say about my second selection. But the reason I forgot ties into my third selection. So okay. can I say it now? Well, yes. <laughs> you've, and by tying it together, you've saved me lots of editing time. So great. <laughs> You're welcome. I was thinking about you. Uh, uh, so the, the one thing that I forgot uh, was that the uh, these books by Robin Hobb contain one of, actually, I think tied for my favorite fictional character ever of all time and I, I can't say what this character's name is because we don't ever really find out in the first trilogy i mentioned this character is known as just the fool and it's kind of a a, a teenage a youth um a, you are led to believe that that this character is male but then in the mm. second in the second series uh you have this kind of mysterious woman named amber who they never explicitly say but eventually pretty quickly you kind of come to figure out oh this is the fool character just dressed up as a woman and looking and acting somewhat differently and then in the third trilogy shows back up in the original country as the fool again and i just in addition to being a strangely genderless character i just think it's a very wise and centered and grounded character which i just love and i i adore the fact that the the gender in this situation is it both is and is not important it sort of kind of is important locally to the characters that are surrounding him her at any given time um but overall this character is just wonderful and lovable and important and it really doesn't make any difference whatsoever what is underneath the trousers and i just think that's kind of a great thing so i just had to throw that in there because i forgot 
And now the reason that I forgot is because instead of writing up my notes like I meant to before this, I was mm-hmm. watching An Adventure in Space and Time, which oh. is a, doc- a docudrama about the creation of Doctor Who back in the 60s. And it was wonderful. I won't spoil anything, but... <laughs> they made a show, guys. <laughs> it was really cool. My third choice, I've actually uh, taken a bit of a left turn here and gone with something nonfiction, which for me is even weirder than a pirate book because I almost <laughs> never read nonfiction. It's just not my thing. But uh, it is the 50th anniversary year of Doctor Who. So I've kind of been glutting myself on, on Doctor Who stuff, both fiction and nonfiction. So my third pick is a book called Chicks Unravel Time, Women Journey Through Every Season of Doctor Who. And it is uh, edited, full disclosure, edited by Deborah Stanish and L.M. Miles, who are two of my co-hosts on the Verity podcast. So I'm a little bit biased here. But I think that even if I wasn't, um, it would still be I think I would still love this book. It was actually nominated for the Best Related Work Hugo Award this year. Um, So I'm not alone in thinking that it's freaking awesome. So it's a collection of essays about all of the seasons of Doctor Who, not including the most recent Series 7 because it wasn't out yet. I can't, I don't think, maybe 6 isn't in there either. But anyway, it's a collection of all these essays, uh, all of them written by women. Some of them are examinations of sort of the social commentary in the show, possibly women's issues, gender, race. Um, But some of the essays are a little bit more light and fun. One of them is actually called David Tennant's Bum, which is (laughs) awesome. Uh, The essay or the the bottom? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm just going to say yes. Uh, All right. But... But that particular one is is very nice. It's one of the lighter, more fun ones, but it actually still sort of gets to to the point of uh, that's uh, series two of the new series, David Tennant's first series, and talking about how um, this sort of sexier doctor brought in a whole bunch of new fans who were kind of coming to the show because he was good looking, but then discovering all of the other things that are wonderful about the doctor uh, and bringing them in. And I I just thought that was pretty great. So there are all kinds of essays. Um, Some of them are very sort of like dense and more sciencey. Some of them are just kind of easy reading and fun, but they're all really good. Uh, And one of the things I especially like about this book is the order. It's not in chronological order, which at first my nerd brain was like, oh my God, what were you (laughs) thinking? Uh, But they really did something smart with it. They took it and kind of formed it together so that it sort of tells a story. So now if you read the book from the beginning to the end, it, it really flows. And I mean, of course, you don't have to. You could go through and like pick out, all right, season one, season two, etc. Um, but it really works the way that they, they pieced it together. And I think that it's wonderful. So I think this, was, this one would be, it's fun to read. And it also makes a really good stocking stuffer for, for Doctor Who, um, a fan in your family. I, I may be using it myself in that way. Uh, Scott McNulty, it's your turn. So the theme of my books, which perhaps uh, would be only noticeable to me since the the theme is books Scott has read this year, uh, <laughs> continues <laughs> with my next book because oh, nice. I have, in fact, read this this year. Uh, it is by Peter F. Hamilton, uh, who also writes these kind of sweeping space opera books uh, this one is not a sweeping space opera. It's his most recent book, uh, The Great North Road, which some people hate. Uh, I liked it. It's uh, almost 900 pages long uh, because that's what Peter F. Hamilton does. Uh, and it's about, uh, it's basically a murder mystery. Uh, and I, I may have spoken about this on a previous episode of The Incomparable. And uh, it, it includes many of uh, the things that Peter F. Hamilton 
likes to write about. Uh, he enjoys uh, having portals that connect different worlds that you, uh, you go through within vehicles. So one of his series features trains that go to different worlds through these portals. Uh, this one just features the Great North Road, which is a road that you can drive your car up through, and then you go through a portal and you're on a different planet. Uh, and so in this book, there's the North family that is uh, a family that has cloned its uh, uh, the head of the family. One of the clones was uh, murdered horribly on a planet that creates uh, biofuel that the Earth depends on 20 years ago, and it was never solved, uh, but it was blamed on this particular woman character. Uh, but she escaped. She uh, Actually, she didn't escape. She was uh, put in prison, but she claimed she didn't do it, and an alien killed this guy. No one <laughs> believed her because aliens didn't... No one has ever encountered an alien in this universe, so they thought she was crazy. Uh, and also, for some reason, she never ages, so that kind of confuses people. Uh, and then, 20 years later, she is safely ensconced in prison, and on Earth, someone is... Another one of these clones is horribly murdered in a similar, the exact same way. Uh, and so a detective is called in to kind of figure out, like a local English detective uh, who is just wanting to, you know, make ends meet, is uh, pulled into this kind of web of intrigue uh, that involves the... the uh, most powerful family in this universe uh, and this weird person that he doesn't really trust and he has to go to this different planet and figure out what's going on. Uh, it's pretty good. It is, I will say, that the first, if you don't like uh, kind of detective novels, the first 200 pages of this book probably will not be for you. Uh, but if you if you stick to it, uh, it does ramp up the action and uh, a little more science fiction is in there. In the last 700 pages. <laughs> they they really make up for the first two. All right, fair <laughs> enough. All right, that's good. That's got the again. It's the Scott McNulty guarantee that it is a book he liked and read this it's year. True, it's a book he read. <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked it. I guarantee it. I liked the first two hundred pages too. So. Yeah, Glenn, it's your turn. Absolutely, I'm ready this time. Uh, I'd like to have a vote at the end about the most. It, it, did Scott create Wikipedia entries for all the books that he's suggesting this time around? That they they seem all made up, but I don't have to go read them because they're so fascinating. They're so they, they are all fiction, so they are in fact all made oh. up. Oh. Just not by Scott. <laughs> it's the double me. blind. Uh, so I have a book by a Seattle another Seattle author, uh, Neil Stevenson, being a Seattle author. Uh, Matt Ruff uh, wrote this book called Mirage that came out first, I believe, originally in 2011. It went into a paperback or. 2012. He writes uh, relatively few novels. He spends years on them. And um, Mirage is, again, I think it's part of my – I have a genre. I guess there's a Glenn genre, which is the um, viewing the universe through the eyes of other cultures so we're not reading the same old tropes or the tropes have to be transformed. So, gosh, you know, I can Mirage, I can tell you how it opens, but I don't want to tell you too much about it. But it's, it's Earth. It's, you know, this time – but the greatest power in the world is not the United States and, say, Russia. It's the United Arab States. And there, it's a, there's some uh, – it has detectives, Scott. You'd love it. Uh, I agree. <laughs> and in 2001, what happened is that Christian fundamentalists uh, hijacked air, jetliners and drove and uh, flew them into the Tigris and Euphrates World Trade Towers in Baghdad and into the Arab Defense Ministry in Riyadh. So it, it reimagines a world in which when at some point something shifts. 
shifted and the Arab world wound up uh, as the superpower and sort of running things with with the same sorts of conflicts that they have today, but muted because they're in charge. So you have sectarian uh, unrest and, and so forth. And the United States is a bunch of really messed up um, little contingents of fundamentalisms and moderates. The president has very little power. Uh, it's just sort of a crazy place. And um, But there's something not quite right in this world, which is why it's called Mirage. I don't want to give away too much because it's sort of like a break in the world kind of thing. And uh, uh, it starts to become apparent what's going on. But um, it's it's fantasy. He writes these these very, I would say, slightly delightful things that even when everything is sort of crazy, like, you know how, actually, compared to Neil Stevenson, where Neil Stevenson will have 400 different things going on, and then at the end, there's a car crash, and you, and you don't remember, and some people walk away, and some are just left as a bloody mess in the middle. You're like, <laughs> I don't really know what happened here, but we need some more ambulances to figure it out. Uh, and doctors, please. And um, Matt Ruff tends to bring everything together in, a neat little wrapper and you may or may not be satisfied with it always. I think some of his novels end where I'm like, all right, well, that was a lot of whatever, but he's kind of a magical realism slash more fantasy writer than uh, say sci-fi or, you know, realistic fiction. So I love uh, sewer gas electric. I think that's another oh one to recommend to people. It's a great, you know, you have Anne Rand in a tiny AI yes! in a cube yes! and like yeah. giant mutant sharks and <laughs> yes. computers and Walt Disney's The racist Walt Disney and, dot, oh virus and yeah, it's yeah, an it's insane just, book. It is crazy. And also, I'm sorry, I'm going to Glenn again. He's a lovely guy. He lives in Seattle. I interviewed <laughs> oh. him for a story. I'm sorry, oh, he's a really boy. neat guy. <laughs> and... Uh, Part of I just like the, the glenning of the glenning <laughs> promise. Do not know any of the other authors in this thing. Uh, but I, I read uh, Fool on the Hill uh, was one of his earliest, or his first novel that was his, published. His first, and yeah. uh, he um, that was set in Cornell, where my wife went to university, and uh, she um, she had it, and I read it, and I really loved it. It's charming and and different. It it it's got a lot of Tolkien in it, also. So if you like Tolkien, Fool on the Hill is kind of neat and. Anyway, so I like Mirage quite a lot, and um, it, I recommend it. It's a it's a good read, and it's sort of crazy because you're reading it, and your head's kind of going because every you know David Koresh appears, and um, <laughs> and uh, some people are uh, uh, there's Osama bin Laden's there, of course, but you have uh, the former leader of Libya, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, is like he invented the internet, of course, of course, because Gaddafi, you know, it's like oh, of course, you know, it's the Al Gore in the book, and anyway, it's it's not a romp. It's pretty serious and very violent in spots, but he somehow manages to make it very interesting and charming. I also liked it. Thumbs up. You read it? I did read it. And you liked it good. I, I spoke about it on an episode of The Incomparable, as a matter what? of fact. What? Yes, in fact. Oh, uh... Thanks for listening, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll close out the third round, and then when, when, when I'm done with this, if you guys have any other you know, things that we were left that you didn't get to pick, we can go around, you know, really quickly and you can throw out other things to plug. If people read all of these books, they can then move on to the ancillary, auxiliary, I don't know, whatever, selections. Lightning so round. let me close my, let me close, uh, close this up, the, the, the main part of this with, um, like I said, my theme is things that aren't really science fictional, but, but, uh, have some sort of tie. This is a, this is an extremely obscure book. Um, in that it won the Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> but I'm, but I'm going to recommend it because I think that I think that there are a lot of people out there 
uh, who listen to us who who maybe uh, don't read. Even though it won the Pulitzer Prize, I'm still going to recommend it. Because I don't know if our <laughs> listeners have read this book, and they should. It's not like they're taking their medicine when they read this book. Okay, I understand. And it fits my theme, so I'm also going to toss it in here because it fits my theme. It's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay uh, by Michael yeah. Chabon. <gasps> I've, I've recommended it many, many, many times. I'm going to recommend it again. It, its story says, it, is uh, two characters roughly modeled on Siegel and Schuster, who were the inventors of Superman, but it's actually got uh, their their composites of lots of comic book creators from the 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 40s and 50s, including Jack Kirby, uh, Stan Lee, Bob Kane, Joe Simon. So many of those of those uh, golden age comic book uh, creators. It's also very much a story of Jewish immigrants to New York. Um, it's a story of World War II. Hitler's in it, Scott. I, I've read it. All right. <laughs> Only the Hitler part, though. <laughs> Only the Hitler part. <laughs> We're gonna get him in so much trouble someday. It, it, so it is. It is about um, people like us in that they are nerdy kids who have this obsession with these stories and the way they tie in kind of Jewish stories about things like golems and 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 tie it into the the stories they tell to this broader audience is great. The effects of the war. Um, the effects of um, uh, well, it, uh, one of the characters is gay, and so the effects of living that life in the 1940s and what it does, what it means about his career and about his relations uh, relationships to other people uh, who he's close to is is great as well. And it's fun. I have to say that it is not only this Pulitzer Prize winning thing. I don't want to. I, I just feel like people kind of like wow that sounds really serious i'm not going to read it it's fun it is in many ways a celebration of this incredible flowering of a, a really geeky subculture that that led to the creation of all of the great comic book characters of the 20th century uh, and, and yet how it was how the the jewish experience in new york city was a part of a major part of that and how it was affected by world war ii and the aftermath of world war ii and it's all wrapped up with with a lot of love um Shabon invents the uh, the escapist that's the name of the character that they create and the, and there's some wonderful bits there and he's gone on to actually make some uh escapist comics which i i think is I kind own of one collection kind of I, wonderful i have all of the com- um, and it's and it's beautiful it is a beautiful book that i think uh, ap- will appeal to anybody who uh, reads the kind of books that we talk about on this on this podcast and don't just because he is a, a a lauded mainstream novelist who's won lots of prizes like the Pulitzer Prize he's one of us that's the dirty secret that he's finally admitted to now that he has won all of the prizes and this book um spoke to me in a way that um I I did not expect uh, because I, I felt like it really was not only things I love. These people have enthusiasms for things that I love too, but uh, they're you know I could see I could see if not see me in them I could also see my friends and and you know it was all very familiar to me and and, uh, and I liked that a lot. So um, Cavalier and Clay, I know people talk about it a lot. You should actually read it. It's really good. Scott, you've read that one too. I have. I've read that. That one. was thumbs up. That was nearly one of thumbs up. It was one great. Of my books tonight. I'll save the Glenning for the After Dark. Oh though. God. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I saw I saw Michael Shabon uh, speak with uh, David Mitchell, who's the author of the Cloud mm. Atlas, and uh, he's a very entertaining man in person. As oh well. yeah. No, that that was almost one of my books tonight, and I had a feeling you were going to pick it, so I just went, ah, forget mm. it. 
but it's yeah it's fantastic and it has possibly my favorite ikea joke anywhere <laughs> see see it's not it's not boring at all it's got ikea yeah. jokes in it it's that funny <laughs> and gull and a golem and I'm glad that you, you picked it, Jason, because I think you're right that people might be put off because, oh, it won the yeah, Pulitzer, yeah. it must be boring, it must it's be... It's a boring, you, you serious know, like novel. It's, novel. Exactly. it's actually, it won the Pulitzer despite being a <laughs> genre, in some ways, <laughs> yes. novel. Uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic. But yeah, it's like, wave it off. No, no, no. Pr- oh, prize winning, no. Boring, bzz, you know. No, what, read it. It's It's great. He also edited a McSweeney's collection of really fun genre pulpy oh. adventure books. I forget or, or stories. I forget the ripping the total of it. It's like thrilling yarns, yarns or uh, the big yeah, treasury like of thrilling. And you know, look it up on Amazon. Uh, thrilling. It's called the Mammoth Treasury of Thrilling Tales. It's quite lovely. Thank you. There's a Zeppelin story in yeah. there. Civil War Zeppelin oh, story. Yeah. Are there Zeppelins? Yes. Yes. So <laughs> it's Good. it's sort of right. that. That's him. Doing all the genres in there, it's oh, it's great fun. And anytime I can pick Nick Hornby and uh, Michael Chabon in the same uh, podcast, I'm I'm doing pretty good because those guys are my those are those are my faves. Those are my two favorites. So, all right, we uh, are almost out of time, but I want to go around and if you have anything left on your list that you want to just mention briefly, now is the time to do it. Well, uh, right now I'm reading Song of Spider Man by Glenn Berger, which is the he he was the original writer of the spider-man turn off the dark musical and so this is the inside story of working with julie Taymor and bono and the edge and how it all started beautifully and how it all went horribly wrong and the thing that's amazing about it is not that it's that story it's that it's really defensive it's really kind of odd and i don't think he realizes quite how he comes off in it it's really interesting. <laughs> Erica, do you have any extras? I do. Two quickies, a, a fiction and a nonfiction. Uh, the fiction is another Lloyd Biggle Jr. book, uh, the one I didn't pick. It's called All the Colors of Darkness. And it's from 1963, so a little earlier than the other one. It is a uh, science fiction private eye detective story about the invention of teleportation. So it's pretty cool. It's very simple and quick and fun, uh, and I like it. And the nonfiction book is, of course, another Doctor Who book, uh, which just came out this year for the 50th anniversary. It's called Who's 50? The 50 Doctor Who Stories to Watch Before You Die. And I'm about halfway through it and pars- parceling it out in little nuggets to myself because it's going through one story every day, and I'm loving it so much. It's two authors, Graham Burke and Robert Smith, question mark. He added a question mark to his name, yes, legally, because um, there are a lot of Robert Smiths out there. So he had a question mark, and that separates you from the rest of the guys. Um, but they kind of argue back and forth with each other about the stories. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. Uh, gives a lot of interesting details um, in addition to kind of a review-ish sort of thing. But there's some trivia, and it's it's fascinating and a really fun, quick read. Scott, you got anything? Uh, I will pick... No, and no, one of the few. No picks. None. You just, no you, picks. you just, you're just throwing things out now. This doesn't constitute. Oh well, a pick. I will, I will suggest uh, my bonus, <laughs> which is actually on my list. I marked it as bonus, so it, ah. it must be true. One of the few nonfiction books I read this year, uh, Carthage Must Be Destroyed, which is about, uh, as you might expect, the city of Carthage and its relationship with Rome. Uh, Cato the Elder 
there's a, this famous story that Cato the Elder, when he spoke at the Roman Senate, he would end every speech, no matter what he was talking about, with the phrase, Carthage must be destroyed, uh, because he just hated the city of Carthage. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It goes into why Carthage was such a, a threat to the Roman world, and kind of questions if it actually was or not, uh, and how, without Carthage, there could be no Roman Empire, because the, the Romans' kind of inexplicable hatred of Carthage really fueled their whole uh, desire to build this great army and these roads and, and everything. So it's a fascinating book. Glenn, what do you have? Well, I just thought of this when you mentioned Cavalier and Clay. There's a book that is uh, – it's not exactly like it. It's a sleeper book. I wonder if I've mentioned it before. Carter Beats the Devil yes. by Glenn David oh, yeah, Gold. Sure. This is a fine – he's a he's on Twitter and he posts like at 300-day intervals. And he piped up about something I said – like six months ago, he responded to, I think, because I was mentioning his book and I cited him because I saw his Twitter account. Uh, it's a book about a magician and it has, oh, it's just, I think it's one of the, I think it's fantastic. Total sleeper, never broke out. And what's, I believe uh, Cavalier and Clay came out not long after it. And I think it might have gotten lost in the, oh, there's a magician angle to this and it's Michael J. Ben in it. It um, went out of control. So I don't know, but it's a great book. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is another nonfiction that uh, really struck me this year, uh, Disappearance of Darkness by Robert Burley, which is about the end of the making of analog film. And it's a book of wonderful photographs. The guy went out and shot with large format photographic film, which is his metier. And uh, he said when he started, it was sort of normal to be shooting with that side of kind of film a few years ago for the architectural stuff that he, he often did. And by the end, he said, I was like a blacksmith carrying around bellows. It was just the transition... <laughs> was so fast at the high end and he uh, he managed to uh, lives in Toronto teaches up there and he went out to the implosion of some Kodak factories and then wound up essentially documenting the implosion and destruction and shutdown of photographic film factories around the world and it's a it's both sad and interesting and a lovely uh, it's a great stocking stuffer this book full of buildings imploding I think everyone should have it in their stocking for Christmas who loves film <laughs> or imploding buildings it's got a lot of implosions. One man. of those. Jason, do you have any last it, things? It's that down we to me. Yes, about? the things that were left on the cutting room floor, both of which I think I've at least mentioned in passing on past podcasts. So I'll mention them in passing again. That's all they get. <laughs> um, they know what they did. Oh. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. I know. Inherit the Stars by James P. Hogan, mm. a, a a book that I love. It is a very strange book about. Um, uh, it's a, it's a sort of simply written 1970s sci-fi novel written when he was an engineer at Digital Equipment Corporation. He made a bet about that he could make a that he could write a sci-fi novel and get it published, and he won the bet. And mm -hmm. it's a it's kind of a classic. It is a little dated, but it's uh, such a great premise, which is there's some astronauts on the moon and they're walking along and they find a dead body. Oh, and they don't yeah, know yeah, where yeah. this dead body could possibly have come from because they're on the moon. And the answer that they come up with is shocking and cool. So it's just a fun, it's a fun read. And I, I met him. He he died recently, but I met him. He used to live in my hometown. And it's a great, fun book. Jasoning. Yep. <laughs> that was some, some gliding there. I bought a copy of that book for a dollar based on Jason's recommendation. Have you read it? No. Okay. But you bought it. <laughs> I bought it. All right, you good. I got zero cents from that. It's that a fun. Perfect. It's a fun, uh, fun, fun book. Um, and then the other book I'll, I'll recommend is the first in a series. Uh, they are, I think, in print but hard to find. 
Um, but uh, I would say seek them out. Jim Lehrer, who you may know as the co-anchor <gasps> yes. of the PBS NewsHour for many, mm-hmm. many years, yes. wrote a series of crazy novels mm-hmm. uh, set in Oklahoma starring a character called the One-Eyed Mac, <laughs> who ends up as the lieutenant governor of Oklahoma, uh, although he starts off as a bus pirate. Speaking oh, of pirates. pirates again? Mm-hmm. And a bus pirate <laughs> because... Jim Lair Because in Oklahoma, Arr. there are no ships, but there are buses, so he can become a bus pirate. <laughs> uh, the first book is called Kick the Can. Uh, I think he wrote six One-Eyed Mac novels. He does end up... Uh, Crown Oklahoma is the second one. He ends up as the lieutenant governor of Oklahoma. They are... They're wacky in the same way. If anybody's read... Is it Winston Groom who wrote Forrest Gump? Yep. Uh, the novel. It's like that. It's funny and weird, and you would never expect... Mr. PBS Anchorman to necessarily be the guy writing these crazy, colorful, hilarious novels, um, but they're they're great and funny and weird, and I wish they were more uh, widely available. But I I did th- I do think somebody um, put them back in print a few years ago, and so they're they are available. Kick the Can is the first one, and they're just they're a, they're a hoot, they're a kick, they're sweet and funny and strange. And and uh, lots of wild, you know, things that he describes that are happening in these very strange little towns in Oklahoma. Oh yeah, so kick the can to smile. Those are just delightful. Oh my god. Oh good. Somebody else. I've never even found people who've read yeah. these. I think nobody ever even heard of them, but they're great. They're hilarious. Jim Lehrer. All right, that's it. We're done. If you if you don't have anything to read, if you're sitting there moaning to yourself now <laughs> and you're like, oh, I don't know what to read anymore. Okay, we look. We we've done all we can. <laughs> We we have we have provided you with uh, if you count the extras it's like more than twenty books for you to read, so pick something out. I hope something sounded good. Put it on your wish list. Go out and buy it. Visit your local library and check one out. Whatever, however you want to do it. We've got a lot of great ideas. They're all over the place. A lot of books I have never heard of before, which is very exciting to me because I'm going to go put them on my list too. Um, so I think we have done our jobs for now, and so I'm going to thank my guests for their. Uh, Excellent, excellent choices. Really kind of blows me away. Um, we'll go in order. So it starts off with the four-letter word, Lisa. <laughs> um, wow. It's a wow. good word. It means I like the idea that I can be substituted in for swears now. <laughs> That's Belisa. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I had a lot of fun tonight. I'm looking forward to reading a lot of everyone else's picks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, David Lore, thank you very much. Thank you. I've I've actually been doing some book shopping while we were talking. Mm, yes, this, this podcast cost you five hundred. That is right? a side effect of these episodes, isn't it? <laughs> Erica Ensign, thank you for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me again. I have been so kind of woefully out of the loop in reading lately, but you guys, I think, have have managed to kick me back into gear. I'm getting back on the horse. So many books. Yep. So many books. Scott McNulty, so many books. Uh, I I find it difficult to read on a horse, but if that's what you do, Erica. More power to you. That's what they do in Canada, actually. There's a lot of horses. I don't, I don't understand Canada. You read on a moose in Canada. The Mounties. No, the Mounties. That's why they're mounted, is they are reading up there. Oh, they, well, see, they always yeah. get their book. It helps me improve my balance. Glenn Fleischman, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm saving up my Glenning for next year. I'll be have a whole new set of Glenning to bring in to this fine company. I got to say, Glenn, actually, your choices this this year were um, 
we're all sort of like lucid and sensible in a way that your choices the last time were, were not. So you're back on your medication. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't pick. I believe last in the last one what you actually pick? you picked well you picked that Philip K. Dick Galactic Pot Healer and you didn't oh, yeah, really even great. pick Love it. That. You picked like a totally other book and then said or this other one that's my pick instead and it was very confusing and yeah so thank you for for um, playing by the rules this time I appreciate. I'll try it. to be less lucid next time. I'm sorry. All is forgiven. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We hope we've given you some great ideas for books to read or put on your holiday list or or uh, or something. I don't know. Or or whatever you want to do. Read the books. Read the books. That's our message. We got lots of good books out there. You should read them. And until next time, for the incomparable and everybody here, I've been your host, Jason Snell. See you later. Bye.